What if his vision for the world and my life and my neighbor's life was embraced and honored and relied on, right? What if God's operating system for creation from the smallest activities of my daily living to the biggest global issues facing us today, what if God's operating system for creation held sway? This is what we mean by the kingdom of God, okay? And entrance into that way of living is the main thing Jesus came to bring to us and to the world. Okay, that is the remarkable opportunity and invitation he came to open to every one of us in this room and to extend through us to the world around us today. And here in Matthew 6, uh, the context is exactly that. Back in chapter 4, it says, Jesus went throughout all Galilee, which is a, a region in the north of Israel. He went throughout all Galilee, Galilee, uh, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. What's Jesus doing? He's doing two things that you'll want to write down if you're taking notes. He is announcing the kingdom and he's manifesting the kingdom. He's announcing the kingdom and he's manifesting the kingdom, announcing and manifesting, okay? He's announcing the kingdom. He's talking with people about the life that is truly life, as it's called. And not here, but many times he does this over a meal with people who were far from God. And then he's manifesting the kingdom. He's basically using the God version of a visual aid to help people understand what he's talking about, right? He's saying, here, this is who God is, This is what he's up to in the world. This is what it could be like if he showed up in your life. You know what? It's kind of like this. And then he sets someone free from a debilitating disease. Or or he brings life and strength back into a lame person's legs so that they get up and dance. It's kind of like this. He's announcing and manifesting the kingdom. And naturally, as he goes about doing this, a large crowd gathers. And then at the beginning of chapter 5, it says, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his students, his apprentices, came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them saying. And he then launches into what many of you know has come to be called the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest talk ever given. And in the sermon, Jesus is clarifying and teaching and explaining about how to actually live in the reality of God's kingdom now in several foundational areas of our lives. Okay, and as we, as we drop in here in chapter 6, we're only going to cover one of those areas, but it is a central one. In fact, it is the central one, the the literal center, the apex of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's gospel is Jesus's teaching on prayer. Is that what you would have guessed? I don't know. It's kind of interesting. Apparently, this, this interactive, living, conversational friendship with God that we call prayer, in which God and I are engaged in one another's lives, this is like the center of gravity around which kingdom living revolves, okay? Intimacy and communion with the Father is the heart of kingdom life. And everything else Jesus talks about in the sermon is a feature of this or an outworking or or an implication of it. This is where it's all leading, communion with the Father, or at least that's the point that it seems Matthew is trying to make by the way that he's sort of constructed his narrative here for us. Okay, so look with me at what Jesus has to say here, starting in verse 5. Chapter 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles or the pagans do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Let's stop there for a moment. So before we can really join Jesus in his experience of God, in his life with God, through his kind of prayer, he needs to free us from a couple of things first. Okay, he knows us very well. First, he frees us internally from ourselves by warning us against becoming like the hypocrites. And then he frees us externally from idols by warning us against becoming like the pagans. Okay, he, he frees us internally from ourselves in verses 5 and 6. And he frees us externally from idols in verses 7 and 8. So let's look a little bit more closely at this. In verse 5, he says, When you pray, you must not be like the, quote, hypocrites. This is uh, the same word that was used for an actor on the stage. Okay, someone who pretends to be something or someone they are not behind a mask. Someone who plays a part for an audience to get their applause. A person who says one thing and yet does another. We might call them two-faced. Okay, and Jesus says, don't be like them. Because they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Let's stop and dwell on that for a moment. Have you ever stopped to think about how much of what we say or think or do on any given day is controlled by our need to make a certain kind of impression on someone? And then if you add up those days and sort of stretch that out, do you realize how much the need to try and control other people's thoughts about me ends up giving shape and direction to the trajectory of my entire life? Like the kind of legacy I leave in my family, in my work? Have you ever stopped to think about how much of our economy, for example, is built on offering goods and services and experiences that are largely for the purpose of managing and projecting a certain kind of image to the people around me? Right? This is, this is a whole societal and cultural force that can very easily hijack our habits, our thinking, and our lives if we don't purposefully counteract it. And Jesus here is waking us up from our delusion. Right? He's, he's helping us to see clearly, to see reality. Truly I say to you, he says, these people who pray loudly in public to be seen by others, to secure a certain kind of attention from them, they have received their reward. Okay, so let me just pull the room real quick. Has anyone here tried to pursue fulfillment by living for the approval of others and found that to be the way to the good life? Right? Like, oh, I'm living for other people's approval. I'm not frustrated or lonely or ashamed of myself at all. It's actually going really, really well. Like, no one is saying that. Jesus here, he, he's revealing the bankruptcy of this strategy for living. And he says, they have received their reward. You have seen the full outcome, the entire spread of benefits that other people's attention will bring to your life. Look at the hypocrites. They have received their reward. Like, what do you think? What do you think of their reward? You know, is it worth it? They currently possess everything this strategy for living is able to bring to their life. And they're still looking for more. It is too small. It is inadequate. It does not deliver. Do not be deceived. Now, is it wrong to want this, quote, reward that the hypocrites are apparently after? Well, no, Jesus doesn't say that the reward we're seeking is evil or that we shouldn't want it or something like that. Instead, he does something better. He, he shows us a better way and he shows us what we're truly after. And so in verse 6, he says, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret 
and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We want to be seen and accepted. We want to belong. We want to be enjoyed and delighted in by others, right? We want to know that, that people think we're worth having around. And more than that, that people actually want us around. Only problem is, so many times, just like the hypocrites that Jesus is warning us against here, we pursue that by using other people to build ourselves up. And whether we say it like this to ourselves in our minds or not, we feel like we need to put on a show for people. We feel like we need to become something in other people's eyes or in our own eyes, then we'll be seen and accepted. And Jesus, very gently but very directly, just says, you can give that up now. You can put down the burden of managing yourself. You can get off the treadmill of approval. Here in the kingdom of God, the smallest, the the most obscure, unknown, unobserved expressions of love to your father are where the reward is. See, your and my secret life with God is far more foundational and fundamental than the one that everybody sees. And isn't that kind of a relief Uh, In the kingdom, God isn't waiting for you to become something before he'll embrace you and receive you. In fact, he's actually waiting for you to become nothing. He actually wants you to put yourself aside so much so that the esteem of other people no longer matters to you very much. You're happy to seek God in obscurity. It doesn't matter if everyone's with you or no one is. Uh, Now, the thing you're doing in secret is not evaluating yourself or feeling ashamed of yourself or feeling isolated and wondering about the state of yourself in relation to other people. Now the thing you're doing in secret is receiving and giving love to your father who's ready to meet you wherever you are. And because your father who sees in secret will reward you, hear this, you no longer need things from people. You no longer fear them. And because of that, you now actually have the freedom and power to give things to people, to give yourself to them in love. My goodness, can you imagine if this kind of life marked every one of us in this room? We haven't even gotten that far yet. (laughs) Uh, What Jesus says next follows perfectly from what we've said so far. He goes on in verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the pagans do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, if the first section was about us wanting to be known and accepted, wanting to know that we are worthwhile, then this section is about wanting to know that our lives are worthwhile. See, we want to know that we are good, That the fact that we have been created and are present in God's world is good. That's what the first section is about. And we want to know that our lives are good. That the lives we have to live are good and are filled with good things. That's what this section is about. Let me show you what I mean. He mentions the pagans. And that wasn't a pejorative term in Jesus' day. It just meant like your average person on the street in the Roman Empire who wasn't a Jew, right? These people could have worshipped Jupiter or Apollo or Venus or the emperor himself or any number of gods and goddesses in the Greco-Roman pantheon. Uh, And the thing about these gods was that they were very often difficult to manage, See, the the standard sort of operating procedure for the average person in the empire was that they more or less needed to manipulate the gods through various kinds of religious activities 
and acts of devotion so that the gods would take notice of them and their situation and and pay attention to their life and be satisfied by what they were doing and grant them good things. You know, provision, protection, blessing. Let me read you this quote from New Testament scholar Craig Keener. He writes... Greek prayers piled up as many titles of the deity addressed as possible, hoping to secure his or her attention. So, you know, Lord, strong Apollo, glorious, wonderful, above all the other gods. You're just piling up titles and, and attributes and adjectives, trying to, like, pay attention to my life. You're trying to get the right verbal formula that will sort of unlock something with this deity, right? Uh, Keener goes on. Pagan prayers typically reminded the deity of favors done or sacrifices offered, attempting to get a response from the god on contractual grounds. Okay, so Apollo, remember that I have a shrine to you in my house, and I dedicated the last battle that I was in with the empire to you, and I made a sacrifice at the festival last month, and and please, like, I scratched your back, now scratch mine. You know, take care of my family, bless my business what have you? And what does Jesus have to say? What is his advice about all of this nonsense? Verse 8, do not be like them. And not just like don't be a polytheist, right? But for us and for them, don't run around all uncertain about the outcome of your life and insecure about your needs being met or in fear of not getting some God's attention and therefore being blessed. And why does he say, do not be like them? Because that's not the world we're living in. We're not living in a world where ultimate reality is volatile and unpredictable and um, aloof and probably mostly indifferent to your life like the gods uh, in the Greco-Roman society. No, Jesus uh, says, don't be like them. You're free from that because your father knows what you need before you ask him. That is ultimate reality. What will you find at the heart of reality? You will find a father who knows what you need before you ask him. In other words, God himself is already paying attention to your life. A lot more so than even you are, right? You are free from the need to try and secure or establish your own life by posturing and maneuvering with people and with God because you already have his attention. Guess what? He loves you. He actually likes paying attention to your life. And we're going to talk more about that in a second when we talk about God as our Father. But before, just before we go there, If you think that this kind of paganism is dead in our modern world today, then, my friend, you need to open your eyes. We are inundated with all kinds of gods and goddesses. We call them idols, which we are almost constantly, frantically trying to please and fall in line with and serve and obey so that we can feel that our lives are filled with good things. Okay, entertainment, status, recognition, money, comfort, distraction. We could go on. This is happening all the time. And we need to learn to see it. Jesus is equipping us to see it. That's what he's training us for. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, a lot of people have taken that last line and they've gone into some weird places with it. Like, well, if God already knows, then what's the point of asking? You know, does God sort of already know what he's going to do anyway? And if that's the case, what is prayer really for? Does it actually do anything? And, and to that, I, I just want to say, let's read the very next sentence together. At the beginning of verse 9, Jesus says, 
Pray then like this. And so Jesus' conclusion wasn't, yeah, you know, God already knows, so prayer doesn't really do anything, so probably just don't worry about it, you know? What Jesus is saying to these people in his time is you don't have to pray like the people who are clamoring for these God's attention, unsure if you'll be heard and provided for and blessed. You already have God's attention. So my goodness, pray, but pray like this. And he goes on. See, if we get into that weird place about what does prayer really do? Is it worth anything? We're missing the context of what Jesus is saying to his original audience. And more broadly for us, his point is, you, my disciples, my followers, my apprentices, you are not to go around like someone who is empty and someone who needs to use people and submit to idols in order to feel full. No, God sees you and rewards you even in secret when you have nothing flashy or attention-grabbing to offer him, when you have nothing that would be headline-worthy to the world, and he has been paying attention to your life all along. He is intimately in touch with your needs. And because that is true, pray like a free person. Pray like someone who is free from themselves and free from idols. Pray then like this. And he launches into the prayer. Our Father in heaven, he begins. Now, unfortunately, this idea has become almost like a a cliche. You know, it's sort of a little bit meaningless to us now. But we need to take a step back. And we need to appreciate together in a fresh way that Jesus just taught us to call God our Father. And we need to sit with that and realize who we're talking about. Right? This is the almighty source and center of all creation, everything that is seen and unseen. This is the one who is the goal of history, the beginning and the end. This is the one for whom and to whom and through whom are all things, omnipotence himself. That person is your father. The one who makes the sun rise in the morning, that's your dad. The, the, the one who gives life and breath to everything, the fountain of all blessing and goodness, the person around whom one day all of creation will be united in joyful praise and love, that's your father. That's who adopted you, calls you his own, knows you by name, has the hairs on your head numbered, makes a place for you at his table, okay? And if you're his, if you belong to him, things are going to go really well for you forever. And the thing that would have almost certainly popped into uh, uh, the, uh, um, the mind of a first century Jew as they heard Jesus talking about this was a scene from the book of Exodus. This is the, the very first time in the Bible that God is talked about as having a father-child sort of relationship with his people. A very insecure, fearful Moses is being instructed by Yahweh on how to confront Pharaoh and tell him to let the Israelites go. And um, let's see, Yahweh tells Moses, he says, Say to Pharaoh, this is what Yahweh says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. See, for the Jews, this image of God as my father was intimately linked with the idea of liberation. This was like the ultimate declaration of freedom over your life. This is the Lord of heaven and earth saying to whatever holds you in bondage today, let my son, my daughter go so that she may worship me. 
some of you have met my dad. His name's Randy, and uh, not Yahweh, Randy. And uh, I'm very, I'm very fortunate. My dad is stable and selfless and responsible and funny, just like a lot of fun to be around. And because my dad is stable and competent and knows how to deal well with life and um, and the world. I, therefore, have the power to walk around with a little bit more freedom and confidence about life and about my place in the world than I would otherwise, right? Like if my dad wasn't the way that he is, okay? So the faithfulness and goodness of my dad makes me able to go about my life with a foundation of security and joy because I know That even if some of the very worst things imaginable happen to me or to Jess or whatever, I have a place to go. I, I, I will have a roof over my head. I will have good food in my stomach. I will be loved and listened to by people who have nothing but my best interest at heart. I will always be taken in, even if I have nothing to give in return. And even if it's kind of subconscious, that is like a shield and, and a rock under my feet and a freedom and a strength in my soul as I go about living my life. Likewise, how much more for every one of us who belongs to Jesus and are taught to call not some man, but the God of the universe, our Father. How much more? If He is for us, if He calls us and knows us by name, Friends, we have nothing left to fear or strive for. We are free. Nothing that is good in your life will not be resurrected. Nothing that is evil will not be redeemed and transformed. God is our Father. He goes on. Our Father in heaven... That's not a place far away in space and time. In the Jewish mindset, heaven is the enveloping atmosphere all around us. God is not somewhere else. He is very near to us. Hallowed be your name. Now, a person's name in the Bible was like a representation of their reputation, their character, their presence. Your name is essentially you, right? And Jesus teaches us to ask that our Father's name be hallowed. Uh, This is the same word that's translated elsewhere as sanctified or consecrated. We're basically asking for God's name to be recognized as one of a kind, to be put in a category all its own. Have you ever been in that place where you're so overjoyed by a sense of God's goodness and majesty that that you pretty much forget about your situation and you almost forget to even ask God for stuff? I, I just want nothing right now except for you to be so loved and blessed and lifted up. Uh, this is that, right? This is that. And sitting in that first line of the prayer and preaching the gospel to yourself for a minute or two will usually get you there, right? Lord, I, I, w- I was cut off. I was without hope. I was orphaned. Uh, I had nothing to offer you. And yet here I am calling God Father, I am so embraced and valued and welcomed and taken care of and loved. And now, like, how could I want anything but the hallowing of your name, right? This is, God, be so cherished and prized and honored above and before anything else in and through all of life. You be so enjoyed and delighted in and relied on and trusted Let nothing in the world even come close to your name. And may you be seen for who you truly are. May your name be in the center right where it belongs. And he continues 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're laying our kingdoms, our wills aside for his. Like Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours be done. We're asking, uh, we're asking for his operating system for life and creation, like we talked about earlier, that it would be embraced, okay? That his life-giving governance of our lives and societies would, would come, would, would topple all the other kingdoms that would rather rule on their own terms, and for his will to be done, for his interests to be advanced. Like, we want things to go really well for you, God. We want you to have this world exactly as you want it because you are good and wise and we are just like lost and dying without you. And so have this world exactly as you want it. And we pray this over our own lives and our homes and our families. Uh, We pray this over our neighbors and over the people in our lives that maybe don't yet know Jesus. And we pray this over our world at large, right? on earth as it is in heaven. So over Iraq and over India and Somalia and at the Mexican border, right? And back here at home in Sherwood, in this neighborhood as it is in heaven. Now at this point, you'll maybe notice that the the prayer is broken into two halves, okay? The first half is centered on God. It has all of the your language, your kingdom, your name, your will. And the second half has all of the us language. Give us, forgive us, lead us. It's about the needs of me and my neighbor. And, and here's what I want us to understand. Jesus did not do that by accident. The fact is that we live in a God-bathed, God-centered universe. And so if we live self-centered lives, then we're going against the grain of reality. Okay? Jesus is giving us more than just some helpful filler words when we don't know what to say in prayer. He's actually helping us to like see and deal with reality properly. We're putting God at the center because that's where he actually is. This is more than just a a, a script to recite. This is a whole world for us to enter into together. A world where God is my Father and His name is loved best of all and and, and His life-giving governance of my days is welcomed. And what He is up to in the world, His good, wise priorities and interests are put first And only once we have been sort of calibrated to reality in that way, only once we have received and and rejoiced in and oriented ourselves around uh, the first half of this prayer, are we we now then ready to address the needs and issues of life. Now we have the clarity to see properly. And so through the lens of the first half of this prayer— Uh, Jesus teaches us to pray for four things in the second half, and you can write these down if you want. Provision, forgiveness, leadership, deliverance. Provision, forgiveness, leadership, and deliverance. First, provision. He says, give us today our daily bread. And apparently, it's important to Jesus that we see even the most basic staples of everyday life, bread, as gifts from our generous, abundant Father. Now, especially for us in this room, I, 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 this isn't as easy as you might think to do, right? Uh, I, I would imagine, I would venture to say that probably for almost every person in this room, we're not wondering where our next meal is coming from. Uh, we're, we're, we don't feel very dependent on God for our next meal. It's already in our pantry. It's already in our freezer, uh, that kind of thing. And Jesus here teaches us that w- what we need to do is humble ourselves and see actually what's really going on. We need to see ourselves as people who are fed by God every day. Every meal, 
every breath, every heartbeat, right? We, we receive it as a generous gift from our Father in heaven. And for the Jews of Jesus' day, the first thing that likely would have popped into their mind, especially when they heard the phrase daily bread, was their ancestors wandering through the desert after they were liberated from Egypt. And, you know, here they are. They're newly freed slaves. They have nothing. They're, they're walking through the desert on their way to God's promised new future for them. And he supernaturally makes their shoes not wear out. He, he miraculously feeds them with edible stuff that just like shows up on the ground. And and the whole point of that entire exercise was to teach them that God can be trusted to give them everything they need each day. They weren't allowed to gather more of that stuff off the ground for the next week. You know, they had to just enjoy God's provision for today and trust that he would do it again tomorrow and give them what they need. And that is us. That is a picture of our true state. Like, we're, we're really good at blinding ourselves to it and covering it up with affluence and greed and that sort of thing, but the truth is... We, all of us, live on the generosity and hospitality of God. None of us lives because of our own strength and cleverness. Okay, so so when addressing the needs of life, the first thing we do is we lower ourselves to ask God even for bread. That's how dependent I am. I can't even eat without your gracious action in my life, right? And of course, we don't just ask for the the food that sustains us physically, but Jesus reminded us that we don't live by bread alone. We live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we also pray for the grace that energizes us spiritually for the day ahead. And listen, when we do this, when we do what this is about, we will very readily start to realize my life is filled, saturated with your generosity, Father. That will become more and more real to you. And if we would let this kind of sink into our muscle memory, we would become people of gratitude and generosity the world has never seen. Give us today our daily bread. Give us today everything we need for today. I don't trust myself. I trust God's generosity for my provision. Next, forgiveness. Verse 12. He says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Father, let us live free from indebtedness free from indebtedness to you, from other people's indebtedness to me. We confess our sins. We receive God's cancellation of our debt that we owe him. And then in that freedom, we give him time to to bring to mind for us people or situations in which we might be living in disunity or, or resentment because we're still wanting to make people pay for what they've done to us. And here we're saying, I give up the right to make people pay for what they've done to me. I am canceling their debt. I don't need them to fund my life project. My life is hidden with Christ in God. It's going to go really well. And just, just as I have been released from my debts by God and, and I can now live freely in union with him, so I now release other people from my need or expectation for them to build me up. I count on God and the family that he provides for that, especially in response to wrongs done against me. And then lastly, uh, leadership and deliverance. He says, verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
Now, this one can seem a little bit tricky for a lot of people. It was for me, at least. It, you know, is God in the habit of leading me into temptation? Uh, what about that verse from James that says, God tempts no one? It just immediately, it struck me as sort of strange. I'm still in my practice trying to really let this sink in and understand the core of, of the heart of what Jesus is getting at. Um, but uh, something that's helpful is that the, this word temptation, it can have different meanings depending on the context that it's used in. So it can mean to purposefully try to entice someone to sin. And we know that God never does that at all to anyone. But it, it can also be used to talk about a trying situation that tests our character and reveals what we truly are. And, of course, if um, that's the kind of thing that if God loves us and is trying to transform us, he absolutely does, right? Uh, A famous example of this would be Abraham when God tells him to sacrifice Isaac. A really big milestone in Abraham's life that I'm sure he was thankful for later, maybe much later, but something he would never, ever have wished upon himself at the beginning, Another uh, well-known verse that speaks to this is at the beginning of James again. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials, same word, of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So this is the kind of temptation or trial that we can apparently rejoice in because we know that God is at work in it to purify us and refine us, to give us a deeper, stronger life in him. And yet it's also the kind of thing where we say, look, if there's any other way you can lead me, let's go that route. This is an admission of weakness before God. It's a vote of no confidence in my own abilities to stand up under pressure. It is a wise distrust of ourselves and and a self-suspicion in the face of testing. And not just because like we don't want to be uncomfortable or we want an easy life or something like that. That's not what we're asking for. It's actually because the thing we want more than anything else is not to offend our Father. That's the heart. Remember, we're looking at this through the lens of the first half of the prayer. We, we don't want to offend our Father. We want to uphold His honor and His love. We want to embody His goodness in the world. And so, so we have this healthy fear and, and uh, dread of contact with sin in any degree. And we just, knowing ourselves, we realize I'm quite liable to fail the test. You know, to, to turn on God, to resort to my old life. And often we, it's very easy to walk around like we're so strong all the time. You know, like my faith is basically invincible or that maybe I even don't even need God for most of my life on a day-to-day basis. And this just helps us do away with all of those delusions. Um, do not lead me into temptation. Do not put me to the test, Father. I, I do not want to turn from you. I, I want to guard and protect my love for you. I have no confidence in myself. I put all of my confidence in you and your leadership. And as you lead me in your perfect wisdom, and I do encounter, quote, various trials, Deliver me, snatch me to yourself and away from the evil that would turn me against you. Okay, that's what we're praying. Now here at the end, Jesus reiterates his statement about forgiveness. Verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Apparently, forgiveness is is so basic and, and fundamental to life in the kingdom of God with Jesus that not forgiving other people is like cutting off the branch that I'm sitting on. Forgiveness is the very 
basis, like the like step one into my life with God. And if I am still demanding that other people pay for what they've done to me, right, then I, I haven't relinquished my kingdom to God's kingdom. I'm still using people to build me up. I'm not trusting my father for that. And so how could God forgive me? I'm still trying to build my kingdom alongside his. So God is inviting us into the freedom of being released from our debts and becoming people who, like him, release others as well. We are agents of his release in the world. And so two quick takeaways from all of this. First, pray like this. And second, do it together. Pray like this and do it together. Verse 9, Jesus very simply, very directly says, pray then like this. And I think he meant it. I, I, I think you should pray like this. I think uh, this should be the shape and direction of your prayer life. Take this prayer, use it daily, meditate on each one of the lines and let it um, prompt you to pray along other, like for other things that, that stem off of this. This is our center. We are to intentionally choose a prayer life shaped like this. Because a, a lot of times our, our prayers are just reactive to stuff going on to me or around me or that kind of thing. And Jesus says, no, why don't you intentionally choose, proactively choose a formational pattern of prayer that will change the way you think and act in the world and that are aligned with my priorities and what I'm up to. That's what we want to do. And then do it together. Notice all of the us language. This is not just a, a like personal, private prayer. This is the prayer of a community of faith. Okay, and if we if we have no category for not just, quote, my personal relationship with Jesus, uh, but for actually a, a communal collective faith and that my faith actually affects your faith and that we are all stewards and, and contributors to our life of faith together as a group in this community. If we don't realize that and have those kind of categories, then, then we'll just always be bumping up against a ceiling. We, we, uh, we won't see the power and wonders of God like we, we dream of. We won't, uh, we won't we'll, we'll continue to be preoccupied with the treasures and the ways of the world. And most importantly, we won't have the unity that will stun the world around us and which Jesus said would show them he is for real. And so we need this. Pray like this and do it together. And so the Lord's Prayer, you know, there you have it. I know that was a lot, but um, in a world that is empty, we have God as our Father. In a world that is self-centered, we are free to be God-centered. In a world that trusts in its own wisdom and the myth of progress, we're pushing all our chips in on God's kingdom, not mine. In a world that cynically thinks there's no one looking out for it, and so take what you can get, we humbly depend on our Father for every basic necessity and receive them as his abundant generosity in our lives. In a world that is deeply, sadly entangled in material and relational debt, we admit that we're a part of the problem and we become free to declare release. In a world that is foolishly overconfident in its own ability, often calling good evil and evil good, we are in touch with our own weakness, we trust God's leadership, and we disown evil together. So we like to set aside some unstructured time here at the end of our gatherings so that we can respond as a family to the ways that God is moving in us. And uh, so we're going to be singing. You can feel free to stand and join with us. Lift your voice. You can come and kneel and pray at these steps. 
There are stations on either side of the stage where you can write prayer requests. There's a team that prays for those every week. You can also drop in financial offerings of worship there as well. And we'll have two lines for communion that you can come and uh, this is where you take the piece of bread, you dip it in the juice, and you take it right there. And as you're doing that, the servers are going to say, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you. This is the way that we are reconciled to God, that he took our sins upon himself so that we could be free forever. And so this is what we're celebrating together. Um, the band can come, can come back up. And I just want to invite you, I'm going to be down here and a couple of our other leaders are going to be here at the front. If you'd like to pray with us for any reason, uh, we're of course available to do that. Let me lead us in prayer as we transition. Our Father in heaven, thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for your presence, your nearness. God, the fact that you claim us as your own, adopt us into your eternal family. When we had nothing to offer you and we were separated and without hope and without God in the world. And yet here we are, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Be cherished and prized and loved, God. Be, be bathed in worship and praise right now for your goodness. Your kingdom come. God, your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Give us today everything we need for today. We don't live under any kind of delusion that we are our own providers. Our lives are full of your generosity. Forgive us our debts, Father. We have so many. As we also have forgiven our debtors. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are in a long process and journey of working toward release, releasing others. We need your help, and we need you to make us into people who can help one another do that. Do not lead us into temptation, Father. We trust you. We don't trust ourselves. We don't want to turn from you. Make us strong. Deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.